The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor at Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in tech and making sense of this market generally. My guest today is Alex Ewell, Deputy Editor and Tech Editor of Barron's. Alex, it's great to have you back on Barron's Live, and I find talking with you is a very pleasant diversion from staring at my screen where the price of everything seems to be selling off, except maybe for gold. Yeah. So, I, I, I hope your, I can provide that diversion today. I'm yeah. not sure can, but. We usually start by talking about the NASDAQ, but it feels like we should talk about the bigger picture today, given what's been happening in the world of macroeconomics. The Fed just raised interest rates by 75 basis points or three quarters of a percentage point, an aggressive move to signal that they are very serious about tackling inflation. The market had a very negative reaction, but it was delayed by a day or two. It's it's a very strange thing. The market rallied into the news. It rallied on the news and it is falling fast today. Where do we go from here? What's your read on things? Yeah, my read is that um, the market doesn't know what you know, it doesn't know what it wants for sure. I, I just, like you said, I mean, watching this play out since um, that CPI report um, was higher than expected on Friday and, and where we've gone since has just been like, you know, fa- fascinating because, um, fi- you know, the market by, by, by Monday, this Monday, right, we knew that this three quarter hike was most likely coming. You just had to read this Wall Street Journal story to know that like the Fed was serious about we were talking about it before the journal in our newsroom. We were, we were. And, you know, some people might have argued they should have even gone with a full point. But so we now know they went with the three quarter point hike. Um, markets sold off in anticipation of that, right? So on Monday, the NASDAQ was down almost 5%. And I think you can say that was almost entirely because it was, the market was kind of readjusting to this uh, larger hike that was going to come on Wednesday. Then we get the three quarter hike. And, and the suggestion that another three-quarter hike is coming in July, I think uh, Chairman you know, Jay Powell made that pretty clear, or at least that we should be thinking about it. And then stocks rallied on that news, and then today they're getting clobbered. So um, you know, for anyone still counting, by the way, the NASDAQ is now down about 34% from its November peak. So I think we're at a new kind of low from that, from that point. Um, oh, please, may it be the bottom. Well, I mean, that's that is the question. And we've been talking about that bottom for a while now. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, so I is this starting to remind you? Is this starting to remind you of 2000? That that um, was, of course, the great dot com crack up. It's it's definitely that question is coming up more and more uh, for sure. Um, and I think there are certainly pockets where it feels that way. Right. In crypto anything crypto related has the feel of that kind of just collapse that that feels a little bit like 2000 where all of a sudden everything that made sense no longer makes sense. You know, it's kind of the way, the way we thought about dot-com stocks uh, and the change from 
1999 to, to 2000, it sort of feels like crypto in the same way. I think crypto is still more smaller though than what we were dealing with um, back then. You know, pretty much anything that's soared in the pandemic has been decimated. So there's that problem too. That's very, it feels very 2000-ish. Um, I mean, Peloton, which I think is now the proxy for every pandemic stock is down 91% from its peak. Um, and they're quickly trying all sorts of new things, new new management, uh, everything. But, you know, when you step back, unlike 2000, um, it doesn't feel like things are falling apart for tech, right? So I just took a, the latest look at where we are for earnings and, and, and revenues. So the two key, key kind of tech-focused sectors in the S&P 500, um, the information technology sector, the communication services sectors, they're still doing okay, right? I mean, Wall Street expects uh, 2022 revenue. So this year's revenue for those two sectors to be up um, 11% for IT, 7% for communication services. Now, it's entirely possible the, the, the downward revisions from Wall Street are still to come. And that may be what's going to that may be the next worry for investors or that's already the market's worry that that these earnings numbers and these revenue numbers are not going to hold up. And then and then we have a whole new set of problems because it's then not just about the re-rating of these stocks and falling P.E. ratios because of higher interest rates. It's falling E, you know, it's the falling earnings. And then and then all bets are off to me. It seems to me. It much depends on whether companies can pass through the costs that they're seeing onto consumers, because if not, profit margins will take a hit and then earnings will take a hit. Yeah, no, I think that's totally right. That certainly goes beyond tech in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and and I, I think some of the good news maybe in the latest quarter was that margins weren't yet taking a hit. And that gave investors some comfort coming out of the last, the first quarter earnings season. So I think you're you're totally right. Um, if margins are taking a hit because because consumers are pushing back, um, then then yes, then profits fall and, and everything's kind of there's a whole new thing to worry about. Um, just one more thing on the 2000 point because I also looked at the companies within the Renaissance IPO index, which is sort of sort of another a good way uh, to see recent uh, the newest companies because it holds two years worth of recently IPO companies. And it gets a little messy to look at all the aggregate numbers for an index like that. But FactSet does track these things. And um, the numbers there, you know, they're not great in aggregate for those those stocks that are in that IPO index. Um, but according to FactSet, earnings for the so earnings for the companies in that index will be down 34% this year. And that's after rising 153% last year. Revenues, those are, that's for the companies that have earnings. A lot of the well, and, and so yes. Yeah, so I admit I haven't gone into all the math to figure out how that gets calculated. But even if we go to revenue, revenue is forecast to be up 89% this year. So you know, in the worst tech climate in 20 years, the newest companies are arguably holding up. Um, I don't know what the EPS number would have looked like for those newly public companies in late 2000. You know, I'm pretty sure it would have been NA because they had no earnings. So. Um, that's just another way to think about it, I guess. And, and I would, a way that we can kind of say, no, this is not 2000, even if there are pockets of things that are certainly reminiscent or very 2000-like. You know, one of the things I wonder about the index, it's been a very dull year for IPOs for obvious reasons. Totally. So how do they create the index if there are no or almost no IPOs this year, if they have a two-year running average of IPOs? That is a good question and something we should probably ask the folks over there. I don't know if they um, 
if it means that they end up holding companies for longer when you get these IPO uh, periods where the IPO window is closed? It's a good question. So let's take a look Certainly, at that. But to your point, yes, the IPO market is basically totally frozen right now. Right, right. And the window will not open until the mar until the stock market itself starts thawing. It's, so yes, could be a while. Moving on, Amazon was the story was the subject of a big story in the Wall Street Journal today. The journal took a very interesting look at how Andy Jassy, who I'm going to call the newish CEO, mm -hmm. is reigning in the overexpansion of the Bezos era. The company really expanded to meet the needs of consumers during the pandemic, but they might have gone a little too far. And it seems to me a lot of companies didn't do enough first when the pandemic struck, and then they did too much. So I'm curious what your take is about Amazon. What lies ahead for the company? Do you think Jesse will be successful? He's yeah, been successful about a year. I hope that, you know, I think that this was a fascinating story. I hope we're not kind of, uh, it's a topic we've talked about a lot, right? Which is the adjustment in into the pandemic and then the adjustment out of the pandemic. And it seems that the market is still trying to figure it out. But what's so interesting about the Amazon story today that you mentioned is that he kind of spells out how Amazon, which was known to be, which is known to be one of the best operators and certainly new e-commerce and warehousing and fulfillment uh, and logistics and all of these topics and categories better than anyone also just totally misfired. And um, so I would, it's definitely a great story to read. There was a few things in there in particular where it talked about um, Amazon's internal forecasting system and how it kind of produced these various estimates for how things would look um, coming out of the pandemic. But Amazon still got it wrong and they went with the high estimate and that meant too much hiring, too many warehouses. Um, and now they're having to walk a lot of that stuff back and that's become a real problem for them um you know i um and uh, by the way this is all happening as you pointed out as they've kind of transitioned into a new ceo um and so i think it's kind of a perfect storm for them um their cloud business is still doing great and holding on and helping the company but i think the losses everywhere else are, are really dragging on the company so where do they go from here i mean it's um we can talk a little bit more maybe we should talk a little bit more now about valuations, because I think that's like the best way to look at it to know where the stocks go from here. Um, All right. Tell me about the valuation. It's not it's not particularly excessive. Well, yeah, right. So um, I was looking at we got a question about this, too. Um, we can talk about that. But so it's sure. got me looking at kind of the, the valuations and how to think about them for the big tech companies. But before we before we do that, can I ask yeah. you a question? Yep. Um, Andy Jassy has been in charge for about a year. Yep. If you had to grade him on the spot, what would you say? <laughs> you would. Um, incomplete. <laughs> well, certainly incomplete. I'm sure that's what he would say. Um, that's what my kids got when they lost their homework. You know, I, I got it. it it's not great, right? I mean, B minus, if I'm being generous, I, I don't know. Um, it, depends right. whether have, it depends whether we have great inflation, Lauren. <laughs> okay, good but, enough. So yeah. as you note, Arvind asked a question about earnings growth and long-term PEs for a lot of the big tech firms, Google, Meta, Amazon, and so forth, or I should say Alphabet, Meta, and Amazon. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about those valuations. Yeah, and I think it's an important segue to answer the Amazon question because, interestingly, um, there's a case to be made that of, of, of big tech, Amazon is kind of on the 
biggest sale right now. And I'll explain kind of how I was looking at that. Um, I took, uh, I looked at the forward PEs for all, for the big five tech companies and compared them to their five-year averages. And of course, there's lots of tools to do this. This isn't the most sophisticated one out there, but I think it was a good look to understand how much the stocks have sold off beyond just looking at the straight price of the stock, right? So Amazon, um, is also still the most expensive of the big tech names just on a, on a PE basis because it trades at 39 times earnings for, uh, for next year. Um, but it has a five-year average PE of 82 times, forward, forward PE of 82 times. So basically it's 52% off the, that, that average. Uh, and that puts it at kind of the biggest sale among big tech. Um, Meta trades at like this absurd 12 times earnings. And so it's from an absolute value, the cheapest of big tech, it's off 48% from its five-year average. So Meta has always been much, much cheaper than Amazon. And so you have to have that relative um, framework in mind when you're looking at these things. Um, Google or, or Alphabet is 36% off its five-year average because um, it's now trading at 16 times versus its average of 25 times. And so that's kind of the order. Amazon, 52% off. Meta, 48% off. Google, 36% off. Um, and then you get to Microsoft and Apple, which obviously are in very different positions because, A, they're, um, they're a little more hardware-focused. They're more uh, enterprise-focused. Well, Microsoft is more enterprise-focused. Apple is more hardware-recurring revenue-focused from its services business. They're only off a little bit from their five-year averages, 15% for Microsoft and only 5% for Apple. So in terms of where Amazon goes from here, um, you know, if you think that this transition can work and Jassy was a very successful executive on the cloud side of things because he ran AWS for years. Um, I, think he's, I think he was surprised, the journal story makes clear that he was surprised by what he learned when he kind of took on the full business and, and the retail side of things as to how much work they, would ha they had to do. But if you have any, if you kind of have any belief that Amazon can write its ship, and, and I think we should, um, then this is a really cheap stock right now um, because of how far off it is from its history. So you know, going forward, I, I you asked where where it goes. I think I think there's good reason to think Amazon is uh, is a good value right now. That he will clean up the mess or such as it is and get the stock moving again. That's interesting. And I kind of agree with you there. So Apple's off only 5%, as you mentioned. And some people look at it as, as something of a proxy for the market and think that if Apple really tanks, that is extremely bad news. But I want to talk about Apple's um, – they had a developer conference last week. Yeah. There were some interesting takeaways from that. And the company's standing strong. Developers are clamoring still to work for them. What did you learn from the developer conference? And how are you thinking about it in terms of Apple's future? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time last week talking about the WWDC, as they call it. Eric, our, our colleague Eric Savitz and I talked about it a lot. Eric wrote a really good column on, on it. And I think what was so interesting about this for Apple um, is you know they announced new new MacBooks, they announced a new uh, chip, their, their M2 chip, which is going into their laptops, and they're, they're, these are those uh, in-house chips they make, which have been super successful. But I think the real takeaways from this latest conference was for you had to read between the lines, and so one of the big things was what they didn't say at all, which was that there was no mention of augmented reality or virtual reality 
which was a big surprise because everyone was expecting them to launch this new either hardware or platform for their developers to create new augmented reality products. And we got nothing. And that usually when you get leaks ahead of Apple events, they tend to be pretty on target, um, even though Apple never confirms anything. So the fact that we got nothing on augmented reality was a real surprise. And maybe I think is a suggestion that we've gotten ahead of ourselves in terms of how important augmented reality um, is. And just as a reminder, augmented reality is sort of the idea of these of, of, of glasses basically that, that we wear and we take in the outside, the, the real outside world with augmented reality. So other things layered on top of it. Um, so, you know, you look through your glasses and in this ideal world, you also get a video um, layered on top of it to give you instructions on how to do something, for instance, or um, data related to what you're seeing in the real world. Whereas virtual reality is kind of cutting off the entire world and it just puts a screen in front of you to see something completely different. So those are the two things there, neither of which have come to really um, fruition yet. So the fact that Apple didn't mention augmented reality was a real disappointment. Interestingly, last week, there was also news that- Can I just go back one second and ask you, about this, where does the metaverse fit into all of this? Uh, virtual yeah. virtual reality, augmented reality, unreality, me. Everywhere, it fits in everywhere. So I guess, um, I think the metaverse is a little more virtual reality focused, um, but Apple, but I'm sorry, but meta platforms, Facebook has also been talking about augmented reality. So it's kind of like everywhere, it's, 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 um, it's both, I would say. So, but so disappointments on either of them certainly are reasons to maybe have more doubts about the metaverse because without the hardware from Apple and others, it's going to be harder to transition into this kind of metaverse-focused world where we're layering digital products, worlds, and other and and and, and currencies on top of our existing on top of our real world. Without the hardware, it's going to be hard to make that happen. And, and I guess so the, maybe this explains why Meta itself trades for twelve times earnings. I absolutely think that's a huge part of it. They are promising this transition to a to a whole new business that increasingly looks challenged and unlikely to happen anytime soon. So yes, I think that's true. Okay, interesting discussion. Oh, and so I, I, but I, I, I guess I didn't quite finish on the Apple bit. I was oh, so we had the yes. augmented reality thing, and then the other big takeaway for me from Apple was, in the middle of the presentation about all their software and everything, they gave a surprising demo about the future of CarPlay. I am guessing a lot of people use CarPlay in their cars now. It's the way that you integrate your phone into essentially your entertainment in your car, so you can, you know, you you can use uh your you get you get your iphone basically um projected into the the middle screen of your car so it's maybe an eight inch screen maybe in some cases a 12 inch screen on on newer cars or or slightly bigger but what apple showed at the latest uh wwdc was taking over the entire front of the car so the entire dashboard from like left to right so your speedometer your gps maybe even your blinkers your radio, your climate control, all controlled by screens that would be powered from your iPhone, theoretically. Um, so that was sort of the next generation of CarPlay. It's a very ambitious effort from Apple. They said car makers were partnering with them, and we might see it as soon as next year. But you know, one of the things we talked about is why in the world would car makers agree to give over their entire dashboard to Apple? They're already 
they don't want to become like these steel containers for Apple. I mean, what kind of business? They already have low margins as it is making cars. Why would they want to hand over all the good stuff to Apple? So how would regulators feel about this? Oh, well, that's a whole different question, I suppose, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, well, regulators, not not safety regulators and antitrust regulators would probably right. have questions. Right, right. I was but, thinking safety, but... Oh, you were thinking safety. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I mean, Apple's stuff is really reliable, but like even a 0.1% crash rate of your software is going to be dangerous if it's running your speedometer, right? I mean, you can't, right. you can't have any crashes. So I think that's a big question. And then not to, not to mention, you won't be able to move if you haven't charged your phone. Well, I, that's maybe, I mean, we're already in that place in our world. Right. But, um, but, but I think what it, what it got me thinking is that if Apple is this ambitious about building the software for cars, this idea of an Apple car, which has been a long rumor, I think they better be, they better be taking that seriously too, because I don't think they're going to ever take over the inside of cars that they don't make. So if they're really committed to making, to taking over the entire dashboard, it just, it led me to think that the likelihood of a full Apple car, which I've always been skeptical of is a slightly more realistic um, than I would have thought before. Because again, if they want that full dashboard, I think they're going to have to own everything because I just don't see car makers uh, handing over the keys, so to speak to, to Apple entirely. This is going to be something fascinating to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And there have been rumors about an Apple car and rumors that they don't plan one, but it's going to be really interesting to see. I want to go to a couple of questions because they've been rolling in, and then we'll get back to some of our other topics. A competitor of ours recently returned from Silicon Valley, a competitor who shall go nameless, and interviewed a lot of CEOs and executives while out there and said that to a person they viewed crypto as something of a fraud. And our listener, Lee, asks, what is your take on crypto? Do you see it having any real value? And I don't think we've ever answered that question per se in fairness, although we cover the crypto industry quite well, extensively. Yeah, and certainly we've covered crypto in the magazine and, and online. I mean, what I can say personally is that I've been pretty consistent on crypto, I think on this call and in other places, which is that I just... You know, I've never understood it. And I, I don't mean to like, uh, I've never understood crypto um, because it's not proven to have a use case as a medium of exchange. It's not proving to be uncorrelated, um, which you would hope kind of a reserve currency to potentially be. It's fallen even more than risk assets in recent months. And so that's really why I've never talked about it that much on Barron's Live and certainly never recommended it to folks. So I didn't talk about it kind of on the way up. I'm not sure it's fair for me to talk about it on the way down. Um, and so it's one of those things for me where I, I don't think it's wrong to say if you don't understand something fully, then you shouldn't you shouldn't be investing in it. And um, Warren Buffett has said that. Yeah. So certainly my colleagues and I, we've, we've, we've tried to understand it better. But I would just say for me personally, at least on this call, it's something that we've sort of stayed away from talking about because I don't feel like I have any great value to provide there to, to people because um, I just uh, it, it has never made a whole lot of sense to me. Got it. Um, I, we do run crypto calls with believers, and I would recommend that people tune into some of our calls focused yeah. on the crypto absolutely, landscape. Absolutely. Right. For a different kind of and ask them some tough questions. Right. So, yes. Right. <laughs> for sure. So Edward has asked, who are the winners and losers in the connectivity space? He's looking at telecom and Internet companies and wondering how streaming does in terms of costs and profits and what it means for the um, basically what it means for the communications industry. 
Yeah. Okay. So let's look at kind of two parts there. Uh, on the telecom side, um, I think people should be taking a hard look at some of the telecom names now, some of the cable names. I mean, they've gotten they're, they're, they've gotten very cheap. Um, the companies that provide us with these with the physical infrastructure, it's probably a good place to be looking. And right they have big dividends. They, a lot of them do. Um, you know, one name in the telecom side that I've just, as a company, been really surprised by has been the success of T-Mobile. Um, I think we've talked about them before. T-Mobile is making you know, leading the way now in 5G um, and pulled off a pivot that I don't think I've seen many times in, in in the world of kind of tech, which is they went from being kind of a discount wireless provider um, to then doing some acquisitions, you know, they bought Sprint and, and now they're now they're actually leading the way in innovation. So, um, and that stock has held up, at least of, until recently, had held up really well this year. Um, so I think telecom is a good place to be, cable's a good place to be. Um, and then on the, the streaming side, this is something we've looked a lot at. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, you know, I think um, streaming is interesting because um, the business is now much more mature, and so investors are looking at are looking at kind of the profits and losses differently right now. Um, and the runaway costs are not really working right now. For investors, so you know Netflix, which commits maybe close to twenty billion dollars a year for content, um, that's become problematic when their growth has slowed from a subscriber standpoint. It's just it's not a good it's not a good uh, combination. Um, and, and you know, one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is it's possible that for streaming, a streaming pure play is is going to be a really challenged business going forward. And you know, we could look at the difference between Disney and Netflix. Um, not that Disney has doesn't have its own problems right now, but um, Netflix really is going to rise and fall every quarter on subscriptions and their their latest content. And it's a really it's being a hit driven business for a while. Netflix avoided that, right? Um, they were able to kind of just always have hits, and people were continuing to sign up for the service. But I think now they're going quarter to quarter, and we're looking more at whether they had good, great shows in that quarter and. And if and and now it matters more. It's going to matter more as as subscribers have more options in terms of their streaming choices, and potentially a slowing economy or or a recession where they start cutting costs. I mean, Netflix has got to be very worried about that. I would think that it's pretty easy to cancel a Netflix subscription if you if you're feeling nervous about your economic future. So. Um, Whereas, but I just say Disney also is hit driven, but they just have so many more ways to monetize their content, whether it's through theme parks, um, through the box office and the, and, and the studio system, they can, um, they can just bring a lot more out of their content. I think that Netflix will be able to. Um, and I, it's also another place to talk about Apple, by the way, because I have to say personally, I've been really surprised by just from a content perspective, Apple's success with Apple TV Plus and, and, and how much focus they seem to be putting on it. Um, their shows, I think they have a much, right now it seems to me at least that they have a higher hit, they do many far fewer shows than Netflix, but I think they have a higher hit rate in terms of what's good on there. You're sort of more confident that something you're gonna watch on Apple TV Plus is gonna be better than what you watch on Netflix. That's that's a real surprise to me. I never thought Apple was gonna succeed in producing good content, but I think, um, I think they have to some degree, and uh, and now they're also really making a push into live sports. Uh, they have Friday Night Baseball right now. I think that makes the service a little bit stickier, certainly within the baseball season. They just signed up a, a deal with Major League Soccer that they're going to do um, MLS games. 
that's not something Netflix has shown any interest in, at least so far. So um, it's a really interesting business. You know, I always think of stories we could be writing from Barron's Live, and I see a story with a pie chart of Apple's business at the center of it. Because I don't think people realize the half of things that they're now involved in. Yeah. And of course, we, one of the things that Eric wrote last week is that it's so hard for Apple to move the needle. Um, he pointed out that to, to, to increase revenue by 10%, they need to add $40 billion in revenue a year. So I don't think Apple TV is going to add $40 billion in revenue, which means maybe it adds 1% or 2%. You know, if it adds a few billion, it adds 1% or 2%. So it's like so hard for Apple to move the needle. Um, but of course, it matters to the competition because for Netflix even a one or $2 billion business for, for Apple on the streaming side, I think, I think does matter. So Hal asks the question of a different nature. Will the Fed induced recession meaningfully impact tech employment? And if it loosens up employment, is that a good or bad thing for the industry's profitability? Hmm. We haven't talked much about that, but it's a great question. So, right. Well, so one thing I will say is we are certainly starting to see, um, some job hiring slowdowns, and then we saw freezes, and now we're potentially seeing job cuts, uh, at least among the crypto companies. Um, and that's got to be directly tied to the to the Fed because it's it's taking speculation out of the market. And so many of these tech companies were, which you know pre pre profits were were able to pay their way through uh, the, the, the funds they raise through IPOs and other offerings. And so if there's less speculation in the market, these companies have less flexibility. Um, and I think we will see some job cuts there. Uh, I think it will meaningfully impact tech employees, certainly among the more speculative names. Um, if it loosens, and, if, and then, then how asked if it loosens up, if, if it loosens up, is that good or bad for the industry's profitability? Um, Meaning that employment has been really tight. And if the situation loosens up a bit. It's a good question. I mean, I feel like that may come, you almost need an accountant to answer that question because I think so much of the way tech companies pay their employees are through stock options, right? And so that doesn't have necessarily a direct impact on, on EPS, at least from Wall Street, which likes to exclude that stuff. So I... I I, I don't know if I have a good answer there. It's, it's a good it's, question. Um, it's something worth investigating. But I don't, I'm not sure it is as big an, a, a, uh, an impact on EPS for tech as it would for maybe some other more older industries where, where they're less stock option focused for compensation. I think the broader question for tech is whether they can continue to pay with stock options, given what the stocks have been doing. Oh, that, no, and that's a, that's a great question. And I guess there's two sides of that. One is the stock is a lot less valuable and, and um, exciting to employees. But there, if you're an employee entering a tech company now, you're also getting your stock, and new stock at a much lower level. So yes. maybe that's a good... <laughs> yeah, it's worth, it's worth exploring, something interesting. So I have, unfortunately, to go today, Alex, but I wish I could stay on for another hour with you. It's always interesting. We'll yeah, save up right. some additional questions for next week. It'll get us, or rather for the next time you're on um, Barron's Life, it will get us started. Sounds good. I want to thank you. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, IBD's Alyssa Coram, that's Investors Business Daily, IBD's Alyssa Coram and Scott St. Clair, Premium Product Group Manager at IBD, will discuss key offensive sell rules that will help investors take profits into strength with confidence using historical and current examples these strategies will be welcome additions to your trading toolbook, our IBD colleagues say. 
Second, I want to remind our listeners that Barron's Investing in Tech Conference will return next week on Thursday, June 23rd, as a virtual summit. There won't be a Barron's Live call that day, but please tune into our tech conference. We've got a great lineup of speakers scheduled, including Arvind Krishna, Chairman and CEO of IBM, Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom, and Christopher Young, Executive Vice President of Microsoft. The registration form is in the chat function for those who have not yet signed up. Alex and I will both be participating in investing in tech along with the rest of the Barron's tech team. And I hope you'll join us. It should be a wonderful program. Thanks again, everybody. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.